Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Your word supersedes boundaries. Your word, uh, it cuts to our heart. It divides joints and marrow. It exposes the truth. We pray that you would be faithful in raising up from within our midst and even within this conference, men and women who take the gospel to the ends of the earth and translate your word into those languages. We pray for faithful, diligent ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to dive into the topic of the mechanics of Bible translation. So this class breakout session is specifically talking about how to translate the Bible into a language that is new. We're not talking about gateway languages like Farsi, Arabic, Bahasa, that kind of thing. We're talking about minority languages, kind of where no Bibles exist and you're kind of cutting the swath, so to speak. So that, that's kind of what this is designed for, is speaking about those topics. I'm going to try and go fast enough when we get, <clears throat> we're supposed to be done at 250, correct? 250 or yeah, 250. So when I get to 240, who's my volunteer that's going to be really rude and raise their hands and make sure that I, okay. So at 240, I like how your hand went up before I even said what you were going to do. Um, at 240, we're going to try and stop and we'll just do questions. So we'll do questions the rest of the way, but I'm going to try and go a little bit more quickly. If there's a few things that I don't cover sufficiently, feel free to take notes and we can ask questions at the end. So that's kind of what we're going to shoot for. And then I want to get you out in time so you can hear my friend Wayne, who's going to be speaking at 310. So prior to translating, uh, kind of a little bit of what I spoke about in this morning session, culture and language fluency, pre-literacy, developing an appetite to read. People do not naturally, you'll hear about oral societies. Oral societies have been every society on the face of the earth since the beginning of time. At one point or another, they were an oral society. Praise God, they didn't remain an oral society. Christians have always been historically people of the book. We are people who read the book. We're governed by the book. God chose to give us his revelation in the form of a book. He actually wrote things down by his very finger. We are people of the book, and so we are going to look at orality, if you've ever studied much about that, and go, orality is a great starting point. It's a horrible finishing point for a local church to have the scriptures in their tongue. Well, they don't naturally have an appetite. Most people don't have a natural appetite for reading. It takes a lot of work, a lot of effort. You're going to have to buy into it, be invested. It's on the missionary, and this is some of what we teach down at Radius. How does the missionary, how does the gospel ambassador engender an appetite for reading? That's a rare skill, even rare in our families today. Man, have you parents... If you have that bookstore, that is one of the weapons in your arsenal. Teach your kids how to read. Some people read at a faster pace, some at a slower pace, but that appetite to reading is incumbent on the missionary. Literacy, uh, prior to translating the scriptures, you want to have people that can read. This is one of the great sadnesses of translations over in the continent of Africa. A lot of the translations are sitting on the shelves gathering dust because people either don't know how to read or there isn't a local church, so they have no appetite for the materials that have been translated. So talking about literacy, we'll get into that a little bit. Is there a translation already started or done? This is prior to translating the scriptures. You want to know, was there one done? 
Is there something in place already? Does it need a revision? Why or why not? If you have a translation that's done poorly, that will really kneecap the whole idea of inerrancy. If you constantly are having to go, well, that's not really what it means, or that's not really how it's supposed to be said, it's going to affect their trust in the scriptures. And so you may need to do a revision of an existing translation. What's the quality? Again, that's kind of the... Uh, the second question there that we talked about, the team translation philosophy is developed. So I'm a big believer in that you have a church planting team. And one of the stilts under the church plant is Bible translation, literacy, lesson development, community development. Those are all supports to the church plant. We always see the queen, the empress, the main goal of what the missionary is setting out to do is to see a church planted. And translation is a support to that. It's a major support, but it must always be seen in that light. And so you need to develop a team translation philosophy so that the translators and the teachers are on the same page. They're speaking from the same script. And then understand the content comprehension mix and fight your own proclivities. Most North American translators are either really good on the content side. That means taking what was originally put down in the original autographs, getting it into the language. Great. We haven't dropped any information, but it's so wooden, so stilted that they can't read it. Or they're really good at, hey, they can read this really well. This is a really well done translation. It's just missing some components to where it's not an accurate translation. There are some components that are missing. Translators from the West are typically good at the content side, bad at the comprehension side. And so you need to know your own proclivities. There's a few out there that are really good at the comprehension side, but they just go so fast or they're so free that they're losing the actual translation of scripture. You can get away with that if you're translating Pilgrim's Progress or you're translating Aesop's Fables. But if you're dealing with the Word of God, you've got to be really careful that those things are getting in there. And so there's always this mix and you need to know which one you're better at and which one you're worse at and fight your own tendencies that take you to one side or the other. So literacy first, culture and language fluency, we already talked about that. Transitioning from phonetics to phonemics. Um, so phonetics is kind of every sound that the human mouth can make, writing those things down. Again, if you're going to an unreached language group, most of these languages have never been written down before. And then you transition to phonemics, what they're hearing and what they're saying. And this is something that we teach. This is a whole entire eight-month course that runs the stream at Radius, how to break down a language that's never been written down before. But you're transitioning to known symbols. So how do you break down a language? What are the symbols you're going to use for sounds that wouldn't be common in the national language or in English. And so phonemics is helping you with that. Developing orthography, and orthography is a fancy word for an alphabet. Developing an alphabet for the people. What do they need to write? One of the symbols that we had to write in Bises was the glottal. The glottal is where you're talking and your voice and your vocal cords just stop. So uh, if you said her canoe, you would say so do, and the so o they would hear it if we just blended it. So, no, that's not it. So, so, oh, so, do. And it's just really fast. But we had to write that symbol because they heard it. And so we had to come up with a symbol for the glottal developing an orthography when we were making their language or developing the written form of their language. And then building the excitement and desire for literacy. 
One of the things we did for the first few classes of literacy is we intentionally picked who was going to be in those classes. You want to stack the deck in favor of people learning how to read and being excited about it. You want to be stacking the deck means taking your best students, the ones who you think are going to get through the program, and at the end of it, they're going to read, and they're going to be really excited about it, and they're going to proselytize their neighbors, their families, everyone around them. I can read. We had a village newspaper that we put out. It was on one piece of paper, and it had stories of what happened in the last week's events. And when our first literacy class graduated, they would carry around their village newspaper. We printed way more than we had literates, but we, they would carry around their newspaper. Oh, you can't read this? Oh, I'm so sorry for you. And this is exactly what we wanted. Like just they're, they're promoting the idea. Our guys didn't have a word for read. So they would say the paper talks back. Oh, you can't hear what the paper's saying? You poor person. Well, there'll be a class coming up in another few months and you want the first class to be a class that can really do well. So you're building an excitement and a desire for literacy. You're investing in getting as many as possible literate and growing. So one thing that is common the world over is people that cannot read very well are embarrassed. And if they can't read very well and they're embarrassed, what we would tell our guys is go practice to the banana trees. The banana trees won't make fun of you. There'll be nobody around. But the more you read and you read publicly, you read out loud with your mouth, the better reader you will be. And so our literacy program, this is the director of our literacy program. She's a widow. She will routinely give reading examinations. They're reading for speed and comprehension. We have about six different paragraphs of information, how fast they can read it. She stops her watch, writes it down, and then she asks them three key questions about the paragraph. It's not good enough to read it really fast. They don't remember. And then they get a combined score based on speed and comprehension, and they get better and better and better the more they practice to the banana trees. And so fathers and mothers who read to their families, they tend to do better and better. Our teachers, we don't want our teachers reading at a rate that is an impediment to their teaching. And so you want good teachers. This was our all ladies class. This was our fifth class that we put through. Um, just an incredible thing. The Yembies called this class the Stonehead class. They believed at the very beginning that women, there's no way women can learn how to read. It's just not possible. Their brains aren't big enough. It's not it's just not feasible. And then when our director of literacy was in the class and she's screaming and she's starting to pass the men and then she's passing the chiefs and then she's passing the young chiefs. And it's like worlds are being blown apart. Worldviews are expanding quickly. This was our first literacy class. Uh, again, some of these uh, people, this was the first time that they had sat in an institutional type of setting. Uh, again, the word is the entrance to the gospel. If you have literate people, it's not your word against their ancestors' word. It's this book and the God of this book against what their ancestors have taught them. You want to have literate people. Some keys to translation. We talked about this in my session. Your best speakers are usually your best translators. If you are good in the language as William Tyndale was, as Martin Luther was, these were good speakers, good, very understanding of colloquial, common German, common English. And because of that, their translations resonated with the people. Nail down your team strategy. What is your translation philosophy? Who is lead and in what books? Our team 
team translation philosophy was I would do all of Paul's epistles. You want Paul to be one guy because no matter if you both came out of the same seminary, you both came out of the same church, you're going to translate slightly differently. You want Paul to sound like the same guy the whole way through. So I did all of Paul. I did all the gospels except for Mark, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, and the Pentateuch. Those were my jobs. And so it took me nine years to get through all of those different books, and my coworkers did most of the other ones. We're still working on a few last uh, Old Testament books. But develop a philosophy and who is going to do what stage of the checking process. Do some pre-translation booklets. I'm a big believer in pre-translation. Why would pre-translation be helpful? Feedback. Well? Feedback. Feedback. Yeah, man, you, what you're translating, you would get to see, could people actually read it? What about for the translator, the individual translator? What would be some perceived benefits? He's not translating the word of God. He's translating other things that will be helpful, hopefully for the coming teaching. But why would that be helpful for the translator? Get some practice. Practice. Man, practice is great. And to have practice without the heaviness of this is the word of God, like you can kind of screw up a few things in other books and you don't have near the guilt or you don't have near the, the things that are going to torment you if you don't get it right. So we translated three books. Flies Are Your Enemies, uh, that was the title of it. It's a health and education book. And so it's just basically about how to keep your water clean, uh, latrines, that kind of thing, how to drain sitting pools of water, some mosquitoes we got out of them. How the Jews lived, introducing a new ethnicity, a new geography. Our guys had no idea what a wilderness was. A wilderness, they're in the middle of the jungle. So we had to coin a new term. We just had no term for wilderness. So it's a place where no people and no water exist. That's no people, no water. It's out there. That's the wilderness. Uh, values sets the stage for later teaching. Just you're getting, again, some things into their way of thinking before you get to the biblical narrative. And then animals of the Bible, guys who had never heard of a sheep before. We don't want to translate the pig of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's some issues with that. So you've got to educate them what a camel is, what a donkey is, what a sheep is, those types of things. They may have doves. They're probably going to have fig trees. Our guys did, but they had other things that they really didn't have a background for. So these pre-translation booklets are incredibly helpful. Live in the village. Again, this is one of the keys is your translation can be stagnant and you won't know it because you don't live in the village. We're going to talk about this. Uh, languages are dynamic. Language change. You guys remember how your parents, their way of communicating in the English language, and then now your kids, like the gulf of difference in the terminology that they use, that happens in small-scale oral societies as well. You want to make sure that you're in the village so those dynamics are being worked into the translation. And then start with easier portions. Do not start with the Book of Romans. Uh, the Book of Romans is the second hardest book to translate. The hardest book, hands down, translators the world over is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is hardest. Romans is the next. After that, there's a whole bunch of debate. What's the third, fourth, fifth? But 2 Corinthians, Genesis 37, the Joseph story, the book of Jonah, Genesis chapter 2, walking through Adam and Eve as they walked with God in the garden. The days of creation are a little bit harder, but Genesis chapter 2 is fairly easy. So this was my pathway, Genesis 37, then Jonah, then Genesis 2. And you work yourself up. So narrative portions first. You want to work on narratives, gospels, helpful, acts, helpful. And then, depending on what the church needs, most translators jump in into Romans or sometimes Ephesians for their first epistles. Get as many translation checks as possible. So translation checks 
historically have been where an experienced translator will come in and we'll talk about this, what the translation check looks like, but getting as many of them as possible when he checks your translation with some native speakers. This is what the halfway portion of the YMBME translation looked like. Every book that we got done, we had it bound, but it had a cover on it that was paper. We wanted it to intentionally die because we still had other books that we wanted to add to it. And we had some things that we knew we needed to clean up. So the halfway point, but again, we're getting more and more books added to their canon, so to speak, so that they could have them ready and every step or every time that we had a translation check, it was helpful. All right, step one in the translation process, read the entire book five times through, read it at least two, read at least two exegetical commentaries, not devotional. We're not looking for what the author feels this passage means. You're looking for exegetical commentaries, including the introductions. You want the background that will filter into the actual translation process. Get familiar with the author, historical setting, particular issues, understand difficult passages, and where the translations differ and why, use any helps Greek Hebrew you have. Okay, here's my note on Greek and Hebrew. If you have Greek and Hebrew, it's fabulous. The problem is most students coming out of seminary have enough Greek and Hebrew to be dangerous, not to do their devotions in it on a regular basis. That type of Greek and Hebrew is a help, but I wouldn't use that as your primary source for doing a translation unless you can do your devotions morning in and morning out in your Greek and in your Hebrew Bibles, because it tends to be an, a translation that is harder and it tends to have some issues that we've seen. I've done translation checks for guys, mostly in Tanzania, in a handful of African countries, and the guys with marginal Greek and Hebrew are usually the ones that you have the hardest time sifting their way through their translations. But if you have it, praise God for that. If you don't, well, there are ways to get around that. There's been more helps put into the English language for Bible translation. There's more available today than any time in the history of the world in any language. And so there are helps that can get you around that. But Greek and Hebrew are very helpful. Uh, rough draft, number one, getting the translation helper recorded in semantic units, full thoughts. So you're taking a portion of scripture, you're working on Romans chapter three, and you're getting it down to a full thought. What was Paul's full thought here? Now you got to be really careful because Paul can go on for some pretty long thoughts, but getting him down to a, a, a thought, you don't want to get word for word. You don't want to get line for line. You want to get thought for thought. That's what you're going for so that it comes across clean. It comes across as one unit. And then you jump to the next unit and you kind of record in semantic units. You're giving him, okay, this is what we're going to be talking through. And then, okay, this is what he said. And then he's giving it back to you cleaned up. No matter if you were a really good trans or a really good speaker, a native speaker who was born in that language is probably going to give it back to you in a little bit cleaner way. Make sure the content kernels are in there. Is there anything major missing? You're looking at the major information, not the secondary, not the tertiary. You're looking at the major points, the kernels or the content, if they're in there. And this is the most time consuming step. This is where translators get the most fatigued. They get the most worried is that this is taking forever to get a good, clean recording, to get a good, clean semantic unit coming out of my language helper. This is someone that you want to be very sharp, very clear. This is not a, well, we're taking the average MBME. No, you're not. You're taking the sharpest guys you can find in the village to do this initial step. And then don't miss the opportunity to teach the truth. This is a little 
rabbit trail that I like to go on is that sometimes translators can be some of the most driven men and women in the world. They can drive really hard, but you are teaching gospel truth. This isn't a book about some historic issue. This isn't a book. This is a book that has life. And as you have your translation helpers, take the time to teach the truth that you're going through. This is like presenting them with something and then just keeping on rolling because you're teaching and you want to get through the translation too fast. You are presenting something beautiful to them and you're disparaging it by going too quickly at times. So take your time to teach the truth. Step three, rough draft back to th uh, to three or four other helpers. So you take that kernel, you take those units that you've got, let's see, you're doing Romans chapter three again, and you read through it with three or four other people. I would usually do this with two people in the office at a time, two new people, never heard it for the first time. And then I'm reading it back to those guys and I'm listening to how they bring it back to me. What did they miss? What did they highlight? Primarily, you're looking at what do they see as the main point of that semantic unit? Are they getting the secondary things and putting them up as the main point? Or did they actually get the main point? And then the secondary information, how are they listing that? How are they ranking it? How did it pop out? Maybe they're saying it in a better way than the original guy said it. Maybe we need to watch that. But you're watching for how in their mind this came across. What was the main point? Are they following Paul's argument if you're using narratives? Are they following the narrative and what the main point of the actor in the narrative? Are they getting Joseph mixed up with Judah? And why did they take his coat and dip it in goat's blood? Are they getting the subterfuge that's going on, the trickery that his brothers are trying to play? Or are they concerned with the many colors of the coat and how the colors, now the colors are all faded and twisted? That's secondary. We don't need that. You're, you're trying to keep them are they getting the main points? And if they've got the main points, you've got a really good draft there. And so you're making tweaks, you're making changes based on you see how they bring that back. You're getting a wide swath of voices. This is where you had your sharpest guys helping you with the rough draft. Your second, your checks that you're doing, these three or four checks, you are getting people that are average speakers. You're getting women. You're getting older folks. You're getting people that are not the sharpest. You're getting young people. Just so, how would the average person hear this. This is the target audience of who you're translating for. And then read longer and longer portions each time. Do not read back to them in semantic units. You want to read a long portion and see how they string it together. How do they tie? Do they even see it tied together? But you're trying to see, okay, the original audience understood this the first time through. Can they get the main points? We're not talking about the other things. Can they get the main points as we go through this? And then can they bring back? And then you prompt them, okay, they dipped it in goat's blood. Why did they dip it? Well, they did because they were trying to trick their dad and all this kind of stuff. And then he was in the hole. And then, okay, and you're getting there. Now, who did he sell them to? Well, yeah, he sold them to the Edomites. Okay, and then you're prompting who you're prompting and trying to bring out secondary information, but you're making longer portions. Make corrections as you see things are needed. Step four. You're back translating this to English. Uh, you're turning it. So you take your translated materials. Now you've got some good units. You've got some good paragraphs. Maybe you've got some good um, chapters. Usually I would translate when I, or I would back translate when I had five chapters or more. So I got five chapters of Romans done. I'm going to back translate it into English. The BTE or BT back translation is done phrase by phrase, not word by word. 
You're not doing this word by word. Otherwise, it would be incomprehensible to most English speakers. You're kind of reading it back how a Yembi would say it, but it's in a way that an English speaker can understand it. So you're getting this back into English, and it must be readable by a non-native speaker, but idioms and expressions should be kept with explanations. So the Yembis have no word for heart. The, the seat of their emotions is their belly. So we would say something like, and Jesus stuck them in the liver of his belly. That means he loved them with an everlasting love. Like to put in the liver of your stomach is like the innermost, deepest part. Or his, his belly was really hot. That means he was angry, really angry. And so you're keeping those idioms in there, and then you're putting little footnotes for the guy who's reading this or whoever's checking your back translation. This is what this means. This is how the Yembis would say anger, or they would express emotion. Or yonyas, yonyas, everlasting to everlasting. Yonyas, 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 forever and forever, we will live in the waters of heaven, and that's where we will live eternally. These expressions that would be different, but they're helpful for the translation helper to know. A good PT doesn't hide the exegetical decisions or cover up rough patches. You're not trying to make yourself look better. You're just trying to get the raw data. This is what we've translated, putting it out there. This is where the content side is going to be really helped by having a good BTE. So you're checking the content. The content checker reviews exegetically the entire book passage that has been BTE'd. So my wife was one of the better content checkers. There's a few other people. I would send it back to some seminary students that I knew from my church that were going through seminary. Take a look at this for me. Take a look at Romans chapters one through five. Look at the way that I've translated this and I put this and they've got the English now, the BT, and they can look at it and they can go, okay, you're missing this portion or this part. This seems to be, and the ordering of it isn't really predominantly what you're looking for because the order is going to change based on the language. You're looking for are the kernel there? Is the content there? We're not looking for form. That's on the MBMB side. We're looking for content. Are we missing any content passages? Watch for key terms. Okay. If it says Yahweh each time, then we need to have Lord. We need to have whatever term it was. Let's be consistent. Lord, Lord, let's not flip terms based on what would be the most useful. You have key terms. If it's grace, it's grace. If it's faith, it's faith. If it's truth, if it's true, it's belief, stick with belief. You don't flip flop on key terms and you should have a listing of key terms. And every time that you back translate those, you use the same word in English that you've used in the BCS translation. Be ruthless. Whoever is checking these content checks, these back translations into English, be ruthless for the sake of the translation. This is the opportunity to make sure everything's in there that by God's grace was in the original autographs. You want to make sure what was originally there makes it into the translation. Translators need to have thick skin. Content checkers need to be detail-oriented personalities. These are where your accountants are really helpful. People of that type of a mindset, they really don't care how you feel. They care about the content. Translators must have thick skin. Your translation is your baby. You have pulled, poured your heart and soul into this, and now somebody's going to tear that baby in half. And you've got to be really, okay, this isn't about me. This is about the word. I need to grow in this. I need, and this is hard to watch somebody go through. I think you missed this. It's almost like a personal indictment on your understanding of how did you miss this? Like they won't even get saved if they read this. Well, hopefully they will, but you need to have thick skin in this process. Step number six, 
You take those corrections, the lead translator, this isn't the support translator, okay, so my wife did my content checking, my coworker has done some content checking, he's translating the book of Mark, he's translating Isaiah, Psalms, Proverbs, he's doing a few, but he's doing Revelation, great. I'm the lead translator. I was tasked with the book of Romans. I'm the only one who is allowed to make content checks to the actual translation. This isn't a team project in totality. We're all individually in charge of different books. And so the lead translator looks at the corrections or questions and implements what he, she thinks is applicable or needed. Lead translator gets the final vote, period. That's just the way it is. So thank you for all of your corrections. I think I will take about 70% of these. This isn't really applicable. You're not understanding something here. It's on you. You're the lead translator. You get to make the final call on that, but be careful. After applying corrections, he goes through another two rounds of checking with native speakers. He's checking, okay, now the new corrections have come in. Has it changed the flow of information? Are they still understanding what's primary and what's secondary? Are they getting the story? Or by me adding this new content, which much, much of the time it's adding or subtracting out something, are they still catching the flow of what's going on? This was one of my Post BTE corrections, favorite guys, he always had a little cigarette in his mouth um, as we would go through and he could bring back long portions of it. But he would also, so my name in uh, BCS is Dao, D-A-Glottal-O-L, Dao. And he would say, oh, Dao, Dao, this is, this is dirty. This is dirty water. We need to fix this. And that was his way of saying, it's not flowing very well. We need, now it's clean water. Now it's clean water. And so he would, he was kind of like uh, my helpful translation helper when we got into later stages. Step number seven, final BTE and draft are completed. So you've already BTE'd it once. There's not going to be a lot of work here. The translation is BTE'd for the final time. So you're going back to English again. All the corrections are in. We've gone through more comprehension checks. Those things are in. We're going to BTE it one more time, and we're going to send it off to a qualified translation consultant, somebody who has done this a few times before. They're going to read through it. Primarily, they're looking for content issues, but they're all want, they're, if they're experienced, they're knowing, okay, there might be a flow issue here. There might be an issue here where you need to watch out for. One of the things that I stumbled into, so they put the vinegar to Jesus' mouth and all of a sudden Jesus dies right after that's over. So one of the questions he asked my guys in the content check, did they poison Jesus? Yeah, of course. As soon as they put it to his mouth and he drank it, he just died right away. And I, I missed the cue that my verb on the end of putting it to his mouth was put it to his mouth with effect. And so you're, you're watching out for these things because you've had enough history with translations. The translation consultant checks at a distance for exegetical issues. This is over email. So he's looking at things, missing key terms, potential hiccups known to the general language family. The lead translator can implement what he feels is necessary. Again, Okay, you're the lead guy. You're going to put in what you think is necessary. And then right at this point, this is bringing in another aspect, as you start to get done with key books or project things, you can start to tell churches, translation projects never lack for money. So I hesitate to say this, but it's the time when you start to talk about, okay, when do we need to print this? Sit down with the check. Uh, sit down, check is done with translation consultant and native speakers. So the translation consultant walks through uh, with the translator what he did change and what he didn't change. So he's got the BTE. Okay, here's what I put in. Here's what I didn't put in. He's put, walking him through that. And then there is a verse by verse, not spot check. This is the thing that I'm really big on. Other organizations are not so big on it. 
Other organizations will go, okay, we've got Luke chapters 1 through 8. We're going to pick a chunk in Luke chapter 3, another one in Luke chapter 5. We'll do the final three verses in Luke chapter 8. That's great. I'd prefer that we go through every verse, and we're going to go through every verse, and we're going to hear, okay, you're going to read the translation, then he's going to turn to your two helpers, and through an intermediary language, or even a, uh, what do you call it, somebody who has the language of both, either the some translator or somebody that's got the intermediary language, they're going to give back what they understood, and so he's listening, are they catching it? like you have translated it? Is it coming through like it does in the BTE? Com uh, comprehension of lengthier portions is expected. Can they hear this? Can they understand this? We're not going sentence by sentence. We're reading it semantic unit by semantic unit. We're reading it sometimes paragraph by paragraph. Can they bring these portions back? Trouble spots are noted by the translation consultant. This was my final translation check. This was Second Peter. You can see my translation consultant. He is actually, he wanted so bad to be here for the conference. He will be arriving at lunchtime tomorrow. So Jason Stewart, and then those are five of my guys. It was the last check. Usually I only bring two, but we brought five of them because three of them were elders of the church, and we wanted them to be there for the final book of the New Testament when we finished that. Step nine, final correction input. The translator inputs corrections, discoveries, and input from the consultant check. So he got help. He realized this area is not flowing. This area is sticking. I missed this point. It didn't come through. Every time you go into a translation check, you are bringing people who have never heard this before. Don't stack the deck in your favor to where it'll hurt the translation. These are people that have never heard it. Comprehension checks, same deal. Well, let's redo it with the same guy. No, no, he's already stilted. He's heard this before already. New voices, new people. You want new people hearing this material as you translate it. And then he does one final comprehension check with another language helper after all the new corrections are put in. That is when you are done with that portion. Printing and publishing, I'm going to hit this really quickly. Publisher is found. Prices are settled based on various factors. Mostly that's quantity. Punctuation footnotes. Uh, pictures, stylistic consistency, book names are all standardized. Diglot, a diglot is when you've got one version. So we have a diglot in our language. We have a version that is the national language and our translation, and they run side by side. So people can read them. Paper quality, thick, waterproof. The New Zealand Army does the best waterproof Bibles in the world. Pages can't be torn. They're made out of material that is tougher than tough. Our guys are in canoes. They're in humidity. So a waterproof version for the elders was really helpful. And then number of copies, decisions on price for the church. I would not give it away for free. That's a bad idea. If you give it away for free, it will be treated like it's free. And so they always, they will pay about our version of about six or $7 for every translation of scripture. And then it's treated with value. Um, but that's a team translation. A preface is thought through, funders, translators, what language, etc. So we have a preface to it, and it's in three languages. One of them is in, Indo or in English, so archaeologists, um, anthropologists who go in, go, what is this? And they can read it. And then the government, we have another translation in the national language, and then we have another translation for the people in the actual BCS language. Dedication, you bring it in. Uh, do you have a big group? Do you have a big party? Or do you do it small, quiet, just in the church? Recognition to government, political forces. I gotcha. 240, thank you. Um, recognition to government, political forces, church leaders. Who helped you stay in there? Uh, who helped you see this formal handout of Bibles by church leaders or team 
translate or the team that helped translate it. And then thanks be to the Lord, you're the newest member in a long line that stretches back to notables like William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, and Martin Luther. This is the translation process. It is not easy. Um, we would get up at four o'clock in the morning because it would get so stinking hot by the time you got to about one o'clock, two o'clock to where getting as much done early in the day, it's translation will pull the life out of you, but there's nothing more gratifying. You're in the word of God every day and seeing people read it. I never had anybody break down in tears as they read the Bible. I've heard of teams doing that, hearing Ephesians chapter two and three for the first time as believers. But I have, we did have the privilege of some of the people who translated with us got saved before the whole rest of the village did because they heard the word of God for the first time in their own language. This is a privilege of privileges. So keep that in your mind. This was my rock star translation consultant, Joe Wafi. His dad was a witch doctor in the area. He ended up getting saved and he just had a mind like a steel trap. He could bring back probably half to three quarters of the book of Romans, the, or excuse me, the first chapter. When I read him Romans, I read him the entire first chapter and he could bring back half to three quarters of it first time through. Just a mind that was like, wasn't a photographic memory. It was like an didactic memory. He heard it and he could bring it back. Just a gift to our translation. Seven minutes, questions, anyone on anything? Yes, sir. That we have so many resources in the English language mm -hmm. that, uh, might minimize the necessity of knowing the biblical languages. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to say someone is a few years from going out of the mission field? Would you recommend that they pour in the time to like get to that point where they're able to do devotions in Hebrew? If you have it, for sure. If you have the time, I would definitely do it, especially the Greek. Um, Hebrew has some particularities about it, but the Greek, it's, it's so necessary. It's, I want to say necessary. It's really helpful to follow the flow and the logic, your connectors, your days, your gars, your things like along those lines. Those are really helpful to understand the flow and the logic because Paul is hard to follow. The other guys you can fight your way through in Hebrew. You got a lot of narratives in there. The, the, uh, minor prophets and the major prophets, you can work your way through fairly easily, but Paul's just tough. He's really tough. Peter kind of testifies to that. He's just, you, you got to know the way that he thinks. Good question. Yes, sir. You're saying that the preferred translation, uh, or the preferred translation strategy is more thought for thought as opposed to word for word. Yes. And can you restate why that is? The reason is because if you'd go word for word, it would sound fairly stilted. It's not going to sound how they speak. It's that whole comprehension content argument. If And again, you're not wanting to produce a paraphrase. This is where translators get themselves into trouble is that if they're too free, this isn't a translation. This is a paraphrase of a translation. But you also don't want it to be something to where they have to fight hard to understand what's being put down here. Word for word tends to produce too much of that thought for thought to where you're getting the kernels of what was originally there. And remember, Koine Greek, like some of you have heard of pidgin, Melanesian pidgin. That's the national language of Papua New Guinea. Koine Greek was like the Melanesian pidgin of the Roman world. Like that's the what the autographs are put into. And so um, I'm not a big fan of it's got to be word for word because it tends to come out pretty wooden. Charles, my question that I messaged Oh, did you mess it? Yeah. Okay. Great. 
Well, I'm glad that was answered. Anybody else? Four minutes, yes. Is there, do you have any thoughts on kind of the future technology, you know, things that are coming that may make it faster or whatever? It seems like you've, just the method you described is pretty developed, but it's a totally kind of manual method. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if other things are on the horizon or have just been ruled out. No, I think there are things that may, I mean, the, and I'm, I'm getting into treacherous waters here, but what uh, chat GPT could do for national language translations with enough data, it could be helpful. It's still going to take some of these things to clean it really well to make sure that it's real and it doesn't end up with like some strange aberrations in there. But I think there are some hopes for that. The problem is when you get into minority language groups and you have no data, like there's just, there's nothing ever written or there's a very small corpus of material that can be brought over to help a program. There are greater helps. Translators Workplace, which is put out by SIL, is really helpful. Uh, what's happening in Dallas, what's happening in DIU. The, I, I don't have confidence in some of the schools and their translation philosophies. You've heard of the Son of God issues that are rife within uh, translation circles. I really trust the Tyndale Center that's rooted in this school. Uh, they're theologically on the right page and they're getting beth better methodology, but it's you're kind of wanting, okay, we want the best tools, but we don't want the theology associated with those schools. I think if you can walk that line carefully, there's some things coming out that could be really helpful. We just don't want to adopt some of the things that come along with that. I know that's pretty vague. Sorry. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. When you were doing the checks with some people not in PNG, uh -huh. um, who were they? People from your local church, people that you knew from seminary or schools? Guys that I thought were good theology students, they knew their word, they knew Greek and Hebrew, and it was just a great help. It was something that, hey, here's my BTEs whenever you can pound. And I mean, if you talk to a seminary student and you he's from your home church or he's somebody that you trust or a seminary professor, like at one point, there were some guys, I don't want to mention their names, but I was sending them my BTEs in the closing days. They would spend all night chewing through it because you're seeing the word of God pushed into a new language for a person. You'll never lack for volunteers. but And then if they can email those things back to you and you work out a system, whether that's a Word document with little comment boxes or they're going to make edits to it. Hey, I'd be careful of this. This sounds like you're going this particular route. Be careful. Be careful of landing on finished on issues where the scriptures don't speak clearly, they would help me with that because I would land sometimes. Well, this is where we're going. Well, be careful. Like that's not really, there's a reason why this has been debated for 2000 years. Um, that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I would look for guys like that. Oh, ladies like that too. Yes, sir. With many languages around the world dying out, yeah. something called the language vitality scale. Mm -hmm. And so what would be too low on the, Vitality scale for oh man, that's a good question. So, are you familiar with the scale? And I can't remember it. Uh, it's usually ones to sixes. So you've got your languages that are really close. You got your everybody from the teenage years younger are no longer speaking the native language. If you're faced with anything like that, I wouldn't do a translation. Uh, what I would do is I would make sure the national translation, whatever language the peop the young people in their 20s are speaking around the fire, what they tell stories to, 
the language that they're speaking to each other, that's the language I want the word of God in. But when we went into Yembe Yembe, I mean, the reason we had to do a diglot was because our language is slowly dying. It'll probably be dead in about 15, 20 years. But when we went in, when dads were speaking to their sons, when they were having heart, when they were yelling at their wives, they're yelling at them in the national or in the language of the people, the BC's language. That's their heart language. That's the language I want the gospel to come in. And so you've really got it. But at that point, all of the teenagers were still speaking the language. It was only the young people who had been way out to town, a handful of them. Well, that's all changed in the last 18 years. And so things have kind of morphed a little bit, but that's a very big issue. You need to do your research. Is the language dying? Is it worth the next 15, 20 years of my life to pour into this translation? And if that's not the case, okay, what is the vehicle and how do we help preserve that vehicle and bring those translations in? Good question. Last question. Yes, ma'am. North Church is now rolling out and planting churches amongst their neighbors. Correct. Are there other language groups and is there like a goal of having natives translated? Yeah, that is a goal. Um, and it's one of those things where they're, where they're going, the national language is dominant, and so they don't have to do a translation. They can bring in the national language translation, but there are certain locations where that is necessary, and there are schools and there are good groups that are doing some of that. Um, I would definitely, as you have young, I mean, we taught, I think we, we put 18 people through a typing class. Uh, we wanted them to get used to using computers. We bought those crappy Lenovo computers, and we got about 12 of them, and I say that there's probably about 10 of you in here that have Lenovo computers, um, but just so they could navigate word documents and Excel documents. Cause again, as you're giving them the same grace that you were given, it's very, to me, it's really ethnocentric to say, well, they could never read. They, they, they're an oral society. Well, you were an oral learner. Your people, your ancestors were at one time too. And if they're given the same opportunities, they can advance just like you guys did. And so to give them those same opportunities in case they needed to do things like that, I think that's a very reachable goal. It's just going to take a lot of time and a lot of prioritization. Good question. Hey, let me close in prayer. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you that it is in our language and the multitude of copies, the light that we have available at our fingertips. We pray that that light would go out to places that have none to this day. Raise up your servants, Father. May they be faithful in bringing the truth and in bringing your word. In Jesus' name, amen.